Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm thoroughly psyched about our topic today. Yeah, same. We are social animals, and that's part of what we're going to be exploring today. A big part of that includes finding the groups that we belong to and constructing our identity in part on the basis of what we think will lead to acceptance by those groups. We evolve tendencies that push us to conform and fit in, not just because it's easier, but because there are clear survival benefits, and certainly were back in the day, associated with doing so. Alongside that pressure is the desire most of us have to be true to ourselves, follow our own intuition, and speak up for what's right even when it's not popular. So there's this tension we've all felt at some point between the benefits of conformity and the desire to dissent. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. And to help us do that, we're joined by a professor of psychology, author, and expert on curiosity, anxiety, and dissent, Todd Cashton. Todd is professor of psychology at George Mason University. And in 2004, he founded the Wellbeing Lab at George Mason, which has produced, I think, over 200 peer-reviewed journal articles at this point, which is very impressive. He writes the very popular Curious blog for psychology today, and is the author of five books, including Curious, The Upside of Your Dark Side, and his latest book, The Art of Insubordination. So Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? To be with the Hansons, absolutely fabulous. Awesome. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Yeah, Todd, you and I met at a psychotherapy network or symposium conference maybe 10 years ago, which is sort of the mothership of national conferences in the U.S. for psychotherapists. So tip of the hat to them. And you and I immediately hit it off. And I was very struck by you, actually, in that setting with, you know, a jillion tender-hearted, soft and fuzzy therapists, probably myself included. <laughs> and you really stood out as someone who both had that kind of game with tons of academic rigor and a lot of, I'll just call it moxie, personal moxie. Uh, I was really struck by one of your early books, Curious, what a really sweet and beautiful topic, so generative. Tracking your books, there are two major themes. One is positive psychology, you know, solid credentials and grounding in that sphere, positive psychology and all the associations we might bring to that, while also I think of you as someone who does sort of counter-programming, like showing horror films during the Christmas season, where you bring up <laughs> the importance of things like the upside of your dark side, whatever that exactly means, and then also, most recently, the importance of insubordination, of defying and dissenting. So how do you see these two broad currents kind of swirling together? I think that's really brilliant. It's kind of the yin and yang, really, of skillful positivity and skillful, I'll loosely say this, negativity, you know, woven together. So I just kind of wondered if you could comment on those two themes swirling together. And also, how in the world do you kind of integrate them and manage those currents in your own personal life? Yeah, such a great question. And obviously, I'm standing on the shoulders of Carl Jung. Paul Wong has talked about tragic optimism. Hmm. I mean, for me, these things flow very nicely together. I think one of the misnomers about the world of well-being, when you think about everyone has a profile of the, what their well-being is, and you can't top out on all the dimensions. So you've got happiness, which is people have been focusing on for centuries. 
you've got meaning and purpose in life. And then you have people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, where if you watch biographies about them and you look at video images or still images, you rarely see them smiling and laughing you know, in a raucous way with a bunch of people. Hmm. Pretty low on happiness, both of these characters, for many of reasons other than just being a black man at the wrong time in history, but also because low on happiness, but off the charts of meaning and purpose in life. And there's mm. some other dimensions where you've got playfulness, where most adults tend to be very low in this dimension, positive regard for yourself, which is your bread and butter about self-compassion and compassion for other people. And then you have elements such as psychological flexibility, which is something I've been studying for 10 years. Mm. To what degree can you pursue your valued goals despite the presence of pain and obstacles? And now you're talking about stoicism. 2000 years of, you know, hmm. of ideas that no one's empirically studied until the past century. What does it take mentally fortitude wise? What does it take alliance wise in terms of developing relationships that you can deal with mental obstructions, social obstructions, physical obstructions, and what, you know, what my latest book focuses on societal obstructions to the things that you care the most about. So they gel very nicely together. And to me, it's like a trilogy where curiosity, to me, one of the really interesting things about curiosity that's not in the book is that it's basically researched by Paul Sylvia, which shows that when you experience intrigue or wonder or curiosity in a moment, you're talking about a lot of cerebral activity, a lot of synaptic firing, and a lot of cortical energy is being used. But there's this weird paradox when you have this experience, you feel more energized as opposed to lethargic after it happens. So why is that the case evolution-wise? How do you take advantage of that and leverage it? And that theme of that it creates energy when you're curious, even though it actually is taking a great deal of cortical activity than as opposed to being bored. This is what allows you to turn it inward and realize that some of these negative, uncomfortable states, such as in my last book, envy, anxiety, and anger. You know, what is it saying to me? What utility does it have? And then this third book is essentially sticking with curiosity as a theme. The book isn't really about insubordination. This is the, this is the, I'm going to give away the, the secret that we would end up in 75 <laughs> minutes from now. And the book's not really about dissent. The book is really about what does it take to work towards an aspirational vision of a more utopian society and not waiting for everyone else to get there. Like what can individuals do? What can groups do to speed up cultural evolution? Yeah. That's yeah. what the book is really about. Totally. No, I think that's such like a great commentary, Todd, on, on so many things. It just gets us right into a, a core thing that I wanted to ask you about. Because when I first encountered your work, I, I think that I had a lot of like the natural responses that people have when they bump into language about like dissent and insubordination and these various things, particularly at this moment in history. Where they're, and you mentioned young earlier, and I'm so glad you did, because I think that so much of this is actually really archetypal. Like, there's so many archetypes that we have around dissent, like the lone wolf, the rebel, all of those things. And, and these days, those archetypes are kind of perceived generally as being pretty sexy. I think that we've all seen like a picture on the Joker with some overly edgy quote <laughs> underneath it, like posted on social media, right? Like the guy who's got that as his profile picture. And that nonconformist archetype has really been harnessed by people who promote some views that, like for me, I think of as being extremely antisocial, 
beyond being anti-evidence, straight up conspiracy theories, all of that stuff. And being a nonconformist has kind of become cool. Right. And there are elements of that that have had really big consequences, I think, socially over the last certainly five years, but really probably even longer than that. So in the book, you talk about this topic that you already got us into, which is the difference between what you called principled insubordination and all of these problematic forms of it that I'm describing. So I just want to give you an opportunity here to talk about that distinction. Yeah, Forrest, thank you for keying that up. I mean, nonconformity has always been cool. I mean, James Dean is well before my time, yeah. but I but I still had a poster on my wall of him for you sure. know, with his leather jacket, with one foot against a brick wall, with a cigarette dangling from his lips. And that image, no matter how we feel about smoking, is, damn, I wish I could care so little about what people think. I wish I could be so autonomous and have such agency that I just do whatever I want in society with the caveat, without harming the well-being of other characters. Yeah. And James Dean really is that character in life and also in film. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book, and I started this five years ago, so this is pre-Trump, this is pre-COVID, Yeah, this is pre-Black Lives Matter, this is really the, the start of Me Too gaining traction is when this kind of occurred. And, you know, you had the Arab uprising on Twitter in terms of, fighting leadership in Tunisia and Libya. Arab Spring, the whole thing, yeah. Arab Springs, that's what was happening at the time. And essentially, it was a real clear recognition that we have not just a rise in polarization, and it's not just political views, and not just a rise in splitting in terms of echo chambers, but it was also a rise in intolerance. And so far, it's just like you said. And I think one of the ways that we have to think about insubordination as being effective is break it down into its constituent elements. So I think of four different elements that leads to principled insubordination as opposed to, I just want to disobey the rules. I just want to disobey authority. And anyone who says they're an expert, you know, whether you're talking about epidemiologists or you're talking about the government, you're saying is I am automatically going to disagree with you because you're on your high horse and you have the power and you have the status and I don't. And so this is a way for me to be empowered is just to bring you down a notch. So the four elements to get to principled insubordination is the first is you have to have the deviance. So you have to have some element where the normative views, beliefs, and behaviors are something that you feel are lower than ideal to obtain your own quality of life or to improve the group or to improve society. So just to be just to be concrete about that, it might be, for example, that in the aftermath of this pandemic, you know, I might ask who decided that we're going to start having handshakes in the first place. So it's not just about having clean hands. It's <laughs> why would I want to touch people's hands in the first place? I don't know what you did right before we met. When you meet people, it's not as if you met them right before they were at a sink. Normally, they were walking, they were talking to somebody, they were eating yeah. something. And so bodies are kind of gross. Absolutely. It's, it's a really bizarre norm. And just the idea of experimenting with this gets to give you the deviance element, which is like, I am playing with norms to see what is the most effective way of meeting someone that I know or a stranger that will supercharge the subsequent social interaction. So that's the deviance part of the equation. And I wanted to keep it simple because principal insubordination does not have to be 
you being the lone minority in a Senate who says, you know, I disagree with the president of where they're going and all the votes are against you. It's as simple as asking a question of your romantic partner that you want to stifle, that you haven't talked about before, that you feel like is worthy of talking about. It it could be as, as simple as, you know, we've had two separate bank accounts, our entire romantic relationship. Can we restart that conversation of why did we do that and why should we have that now? So the first dynamic is any deviation from the established norm. That's right. And you know, that really small stakes example is the norm you have you develop norms in your relationships. You know, you two have it in father in your father-son relationship and just playing yeah. with what are the norms, who made them, who taught the person that made them. Just starting to ask these questions with curiosity gets you to think of I can completely reinvent this relationship, but start from the place of figuring out. What are the parameters of our relationship that, you know, the building blocks? Great. The second piece of that equation of principled insubordination is about authenticity. And this mm-hmm. is where you're seeing a real lack of high levels of dissent in the culture, real low levels of authenticity for a lot of this dissent. And I think, Forrest, you captured it well. A lot of the dissent that's occurring right now, particularly in the political realm, left and right and, you know, left of center, right of center, is... People are showcasing, I am a loyal group member, and so this is what I'm supposed to say, as opposed to, I've thought deeply about this issue, and so I'm going to express this particular opinion. So that's the authenticity part, which is, are you doing this because you believe in it, or are you doing this because you're trying to justify it, and you've already reached your conclusions ahead of time without thought, without caution, and without deep consideration of multiple ways of approaching something? I think that part of what you're highlighting here, Todd, which I think is really important, is that forms of dissent can themselves become a kind of group membership. And at that point, it's no longer dissent, right? If like the consensus on your in your tribal group is that we're not going to trust this knowledgeable group of people, then you are no longer being like a cool libertarian joker type by sticking it to the man and having that view. You're just agreeing with your tribal identity. Right. And and another way of reframing exactly what you said, although you did it beautifully, is that society keeps altering the arc of morality and the arc of ethics and the arc of what is valued by the members of a particular group. And so as you reach critical mass, you might forget it's it's actually has a term. It's called social cryptonesia where we forget the social norms of the past and we're so ensconced in the present moment that we don't realize that we're no longer the outliers. We're no longer the minority. We're actually the majority. Yeah. And I think a lot of that's happening in society right now. And it's, and it's, it's, not, really, it's not really problematic, except if you're not aware that you are on a trajectory of change and to realize how far you've come and whether it's actually possible to reach the end game and what that end game actually is. Those are the three elements to be aware of when you're involved with the social movement. And the authenticity part of this is, is this something that is a deep concern and value of yours? Is this contrary to your personality or is this a a central element of your personality that you're expressing? And it's in Mm. the equation to prevent group membership signals being the feature of principled insubordination. Great. Good, What's, what's the third element? So the third one, and this was actually suggested by our friend Russ Harris, who's the big acceptance commitment therapy guru, my favorite book, The Happiness Trap of of acceptance commitment therapy, who said, you know what, you need something in there, let's call it contribution. 
And the contribution part of that equation is it is really easy to rip apart social norms. It's really easy to point out the flaws in someone's ideas. It's very difficult to be, have a motivation to construct something more functional and healthier than there is right now. But I should give the caveat here. I'm not suggesting, which often organizations do, don't give any ideas or criticisms unless you have a better replacement for it. Because that is a hmm. horrible group norm that actually prevents half-baked ideas or really good questions to be asked in a group setting. Yeah, right. It would be like telling physicians that they can't diagnose an illness unless they have a cure. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or you, you need to have 90% consensus before you can actually speak to the evidence on you know any cure, any idea that you can actually give to a client. And that sets you up for the fourth one, right? Yeah. So that's all in the numerator. So if you increase any of those dimensions, you are increasing principal insubordination. So if you're raising kids, for example, which we might get to later, you want to raise like little rebels that are actually healthy members of society, stewards of the environment, stewards of a better world. You will work on their authenticity, work on their thoughts about how can you contribute and make the world better, including your friends, your social groups, your school, your, your community, and then start asking questions and just don't obey authority figures mindlessly that uh, they have the right answer just because they're taller than you. And like a Peanuts cartoon, you know, they're womp womping at you as you kind of barely even make eye contact with them. Like start asking questions. In the denominator, the other way you can intervene is the element of social pressure. So the greater social pressure there is to conform, to obey, to seek harmony, to seek cohesion, the less principal insubordination you're going to have. And there's this mm. really cool study by Kimberly Rios and her colleagues. I'm surprised this hasn't gotten more attention. We know, and you know, Forrest, you opened up this whole podcast of talking about this 1.5 million year motivation to belong, to be a good group member, and to survive another day. And this is you know, bred into our DNA. But one of the things that we know is the more that you prime someone to think about their need to belong, Am I being cared for? Am I being valued by other scientists? Am I on this podcast with you? Do you care about my thoughts and opinions? Or are you going to steamroll all over me? If I have this primed, what happens is I'm going to seek to win favor, to win your approval, to, to gain status and show that I'm a good group member. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to question or challenge what is the conventional way of thinking by you two on this podcast by members of my scientific community when I'm hanging out with them at scientific conferences. Sense of belonging, thinking about that makes you focus less on being a unique individual that has unique ideas, values, and perspectives. Hmm. So it's a barrier. So this is great. I guess I want to go back to the image of the yin-yang symbol that many people are familiar with. And one thing that has struck me about it is that traditionally in the black aspect of the yin-yang symbol, which is typically represented as yin, there's a dot of white. And in the white aspect of that symbol representing yang, there's a spot of darkness. And it's the combination of the two together that is really powerful. And there's also a notion that if we're overly saturated in one, we tend to flip into the other. So I, I think a lot about, for example, when Force and I were writing Resilient, we thought about the ways in which autonomy and intimacy, broadly stated, actually support each other, even though they're often posed as in conflict. 
And I think back on where I began here with you, just reflecting on you a bit. You know, I'm a therapist. I just can't help myself not doing therapy here, just understanding people. This quality in you of both sweetness, which I, let's say, loosely really associate with positive psychology and feistiness, the two actually support each other. Because if you are just sweet, or if I were entirely and only sweet, uh, something would be problematic. It's hard to sustain sweetness if you don't have some feistiness. On the other hand, nothing but feistiness gets really wearing in relationships. And what enables feistiness to have its own space is a quality of sweetness as well, the two together. And so I think about the ways in which, for example, a deeply internalized felt sense of connection, secure attachment, belonging, feeling cared about, having standing, can actually foster a fair amount of independent insubordination, not subordinating yourself to the group master plan. Flip the other way, a certain confidence in your own inner freedom to see what you see, think what you think, value what you value, and say what you say, a kind of standing in that confidence then helps people tolerate a lot more relationship rough and tumble and to be open, actually, to depths of intimacy with others because there's no fear that you're going to be swallowed up and become one of the Borg, you know, when the dust settles after all of that. So it's the combination of the two and the ways in which they actually feed each other that I, I find really interesting. And I wondered if you wanted to say more about that. Yeah. I mean, this fits very nicely with Bowlby's work where, you know, you have, you have the secure base and you have the safe haven. And these are characters in your life play these roles. Hopefully everybody has at least one person in their life who provides the secure base, which is anytime you are overwhelmed with undesirable thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, memories, traumatic events, stressful life events, adversity, you can come back to the basically the secure base, and they will hold you, cuddle you, provide you support, provide assistance, provide, you know, emotional care, provide financial care, you know, and provide, as you're describing, like a welcoming as, listen, whatever it is that you experience, you are not defined by your stressful events and your traumas. We welcome you back. And not only that, like there's a part of you that is untouched by all the things you experience. And and I love you and care for you no matter what. So without that secure base, it is very difficult to be this unique individual and express your authenticity in a group setting, even online, unless, you know, if, you know, if you have that Joker avatar kind of image, you can do it. But if you actually put your name out there, it's quite terrifying because your brain doesn't process the online world as if there are there's one person in listening to you and responding to you. You imagine every single creature that is saying something is standing at your door and is very threatening at a you know neurophysiological level to actually have criticism levied at you. It feels like everybody's watching. But then there's what gets less attention by Bowlby, which is the safe haven. And the safe haven is kind of like you know, the people of Greece saying goodbye to Odysseus as he goes on to his, you know, goes on to his Odyssey, where it's like, listen, we know you need to take this journey. And we know when you come back, you are going to grow and be such a different person that we're not going to recognize you. Besides, you know, the, you know, the ZZ Top beard, your personality is going to change by what your conquest that you fail at and the conquest that you are effectively work at. You're going to be stronger, wiser, intelligent, or you might be broken when you come back. 
We support your explorations. Go say what you need to, deviate from the group, and we'll welcome you back. It's very different than the secure base. You're basically saying is that like you're going to change, and we are actually open to you changing. And that is a beautiful thing. And I actually mm. think it's unfortunately rare in long-term romantic relationships because yeah. I think we'll get to this. One of the things about challenging the status quo that is so hard is our brains really seek predictability and they really seek low levels of uncertainty. And to do that, we keep a stable, fixed vision of the people in our world. And we don't really like when they deviate too often. We've kind of touched on two bases here so far. We've talked about principled and subordination and the components of that and the ways to kind of be be aware of that. And then we've talked about finding a really secure base and identifying people in your life who are going to support you even as you grow and change over time and are also probably going to like check you in some important ways. They're going to have interactions with you where they're like, well, that was great, but this one maybe strayed a little bit from that principled subordination kind of uh, equation, and therefore we got to rein some things in. Be more like Batman and less like the Joker. <laughs> like the Joker, sure. Batman yeah. was a kind of rebellious character too, and he was the dark knight, right? Let's not forget, but he wasn't too out there. Anyway, yeah, keep, yeah. Sorry, so however, Forrest, keep going there. Yeah, no, totally great. However you want to kind of talk about that or consider that. And for me, something really important runs under both of those things you've said so far here, Todd, which is just self-awareness. It's just like being able to identify that you're filling out the equation properly and being able to identify the people who've got your best interest at heart as opposed to the people who don't. And having fundamentally positive intent, not just trolling, not just counterpunching, not just asking questions. Yeah, totally. All of those elements. And I think that like, whenever you get into questions of self-awareness, two things come up for me. The first one is, okay, what can we do to cultivate more self-awareness around these issues so that we can really understand whether or not we have truly abided by our principles or whether we've strayed from them? And I'm really interested in your view on that. But I've also got this other question that kind of haunts me a little bit as somebody who's engaged in positive psychology and like learning about mental health stuff and all of that. And it's, can we truly cultivate self-awareness at all? And here's what I mean by that. I think that self-awareness is like the biggest problem that people have in their lives, in therapy, in like a lot of different contexts with this stuff, because it is so hard to see ourselves clearly. And often it requires enormous work in a clinical space with somebody else before you're able to get them to a point where they can actually take a step back from their own material and view it in like a coherent and fair way without so much of their own story getting wrapped up in it. So like, to what extent can we cultivate more self-awareness about whether or not we're being principled or whether or not we're being just a real pain in the ass? And I, I'm really curious what your take is here. Yeah. I mean, this is why I want to hang out with you guys for an hour and a half. You know, <laughs> I, lo- I love a- Angela Duckworth tells a story that's from her mentor to break down therapy into three small parts. And I love it which is, so this is, we don't even know the origin, but it's, I don't want to take credit for it. Yeah. So one is to be vulnerable enough to reveal kind of delicately what exactly you're thinking and feeling. So this is, obviously this is a retrospective. Obviously we know from Stanley Schachter's work on memory that over time it degrades and perverts over time and gets closer to what we want it to be as opposed to what it actually was. Like I become a better high school athlete every year over the course of time. By the age of 47. The fish gets a little bit bigger. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically, I'm, I'm almost an Olympic medalist to my kids. 
at the age of 47. <laughs> Keeps changing. So being vulnerable, sitting with your uncomfortable feelings and thoughts about that when you're vulnerable, and then shifting perspective. And you can think of, if you break into, you know, as you can see, I like to break things into its constituent elements because then you can yeah. work with it. And so really, if you play with those three, you get it to kind of how you can increase self-awareness, which, you know, I might be more optimistic than you that you can cr increase self-awareness, but it's not an easy task. And I think people yeah. underestimate the reason there's a $4.5 billion self-help market per year is because it's hard. And nobody reads just one book on happiness because it's it's rare that you can get, you can have a match between who you are and what you aspire to become and able to close the gap between the present self and the ideal self with a single person, a single book, a single conversation. So the first thing about this is the vulnerability part. And that is you need to really understand where you get hijacked. You know, you understand, I use the term emotional prejudice and actually play with of like which emotions pull you out of the present moment. This is really kind of tackling with my Rick Hansen on my shoulder. And so, <laughs> you know, this is something that you know, but the self-awareness is probably there, but the willingness to disclose that and who you disclose it to, that's where I think you have the biggest barrier to. Mm, so mm -hmm. I know, for example, that the emotion that I had the most difficulty with when I was younger in my 20s was envy. It's because I just, I mm. can really see all the counterfactuals of how I could be with all these amazing, strong, I went to an Ivy League school, so really intelligent people. When you see someone run a crowd and own the audience is able to tell a story that is captivating yeah. and people oh, nice. actually are about to drink and put their beer down and actually because they have to make eye contact with you. You watch it and you're like, damn, how do they do that? So when I was younger, this emotion was the one that took me the most out of the present moment. I'd fold my arms, you know, like a, like a bouncer in a bar and just kind of be like pissed off a little bit. Mm. Like I want to mm -hmm. be, mm -hmm. I want to have his equanimity, that woman's sense of humor, you know, that guy's like work habits and that person over there, their ability to articulate their emotions as clear as them. Damn, I want all those things. As I got older, realizing that was my emotional prejudice, it's the one mm. I worked on the most. And I realized, man, this, and that, that's what I, you know, wrote about in the upside of your dark side was like, this is a beautiful thing to know this, this emotion sucks, but I grow the most from this one because it hijacks me the most. I think that that's such a great, by the way, just like in general, general principle, we were talking about this recently on an episode of the podcast where however you want to talk about it, like we grow at the edge of our comfort zone, integrating aspects of your personality that you find a little bit less natural to give like my personal example of that. I thought of myself as, for a long time, still kind of am a pretty top down cognitive person, but I found the most personal growth and in interacting with the more bottom up, like somatic body based parts of my experience, accepting my emotions, all of those aspects of it. So totally, totally co-sign what you're saying here so far, Todd. Yeah. So I want to really underline the self-awareness around what your intent actually is. When I think about principled nonconformity, I see a lot of communications in the broad sphere of the culture, both politically uh, and in terms of public health policy lately and also in psychology, in which, wow, it's really hard for me to identify some kind of good intent behind whatever it is a person's saying provocatively. And it seems clear, and often it's revealed after a couple of cycles of interacting with them or if other people probe them, 
that they really are not there with particularly good intent. They're just there to mess with the opposition. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're just there to cause trouble. They're just there to be a flamethrower and to derail, actually, some kind of productive focus on a useful topic or, you know, an initiative toward, you know, your fundamental interest here, Todd, helping the world, you know, to a softer landing than the one it's headed for right now, for everyone's sake, including our precious kids. They're not there for that purpose. They're there to derail it. And I wonder about the extent to which people can be really clear about their intent. You know, I, I think that goes back to the contribution factor of the four factors. Oh, of, yeah. Uh, principled right. uh, insubordination, that their intent is genuinely contributive. So how can people be aware of that and have the courage to go after being genuinely contributive, even if there's some personal risk in being not so subordinated, you know, to the dominant paradigm. I'm glad you brought the courage portion into the mix because that's that's a really important important piece here. And there's a reason that it's not in the formula because it's actually an enabler of the elements of principle insubordination, yeah, but isn't principle insubordination itself. Yeah. You know, so if you if you move from the vulnerability part to self awareness to the sitting with the uncomfortable mm. gook that's in your head, mm -hmm. or you know, future oriented, past oriented. You know, as Rick, your books attest to, you know, you don't really have this in the present moment when you're fully there mm -hmm. and you're able to disentangle us. So there was, there was an incident 2019 at American University, right around the block from my house, where the first black student to ever be elected senior president of the student body. So she was, you know, she was excited and she was, you know, she was all over to social media and she was giving these talks at the local news stations. And then she came on campus one day and somebody had tied with rope a bunch of bananas all over campus with her name on it. And it was this really traumatizing thing, not just for her, but just the entire community of like, like what, like what is American University where a black woman becomes a student body president and then everyone's hanging a bunch of bananas all over campus? Who are we? So they had a, some real self-reflection. Yeah. Now the story got worse, which gets to this kind of sitting with part. It ends up being that some neo-Nazi, like in in the Southeast, I'm going to say Alabama, but it might be Arkansas. I do confuse those states. Um, my apologies for- <laughs> They both start with A. I mean- Yeah, it's me, not you. You're only a college professor, Todd. You know, No geography. <laughs> no big. So some random bloke, this neo-Nazi guy with a major social media following said, let's go get her. And mm. it just went amok. They were writing articles, blog posts, and it was unstoppable about her everywhere. And so this, and this force, this goes back to a point you made earlier in terms of, you know, we have these people that are dissenting, but it seems as if they're doing it for evil means and kind of just kind of, it's part of their group. And so this cat is dissenting from proper ethical, moral behavior, being a good citizen of, you know, being a good citizen, all of these things. And what this person needed was in terms of self-awareness was, can you sit with like, what, what did you experience that compelled you? for a random stranger hundreds of miles away for her to be yeah. socially and emotionally attacked. So yeah. first is like to be aware of like, you know, what are the things where you're vulnerable? But the second is, can you sit with this before you press send, before you write those mm. letters down to sit with it? Because, and that it doesn't actually, I don't want to underestimate this, but I, don't, I also don't want to overestimate this. It doesn't require too much to start to create some default rules. I'm not going to write anything provocative against another actual singular person. 
until I wait 24 to 48 hours. It's, it's not a hard rule to follow by. Um, and the reason is so you can sit with it, like sit with these emotions that this person is stirring up. You sit with what the issue is stirring up with you. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, and this is where, you know, Forrest, I think you and I would agree is we're going to flip this guy around to kind of revoke his neo-Nazi status. But what it can do is prevent him from going out of his unnecessary way to find people to harm because they are making progress in their personal lives and achieving well-being. And you, sure. your mission is to kind of bring them down. And then you get to the third part, which is shifting perspectives. So now you start to ask some cool questions, which you know a lot of us Stoics and scientists and therapists have doing over the years, such as if there was a bird's eye view from the perspective of someone that was doing surveillance on the roof of my house of day to day of how am I living? How would I feel watching those videotapes? Like this is your life that you're doing. This is what you spent your time on. You could have exercised today. You could have went and played Frisbee in the park today. You could have spent time in a video arcade with your friends. And you decided to go online and attack some woman, like, you know, hundreds of miles away. That was the thing you wanted to do. And then yeah. you get to bigger questions. You know, what do you want in your epitaph? Looking back at your life, like imagine 80 years of age. Like, how are you going to feel about this? If your closest friend had the desire to harm a complete stranger, they never even had even contact by email or even read a website that was written by them. And they said they wanted to attack them. What would you say to your friend? So these perspective shifts are ways to kind of increase self-awareness and you can keep going with them. If there is a problem that you see, what are the alternative ways, routes that you could be taking there? So those perspective shifts are, are a really nice way to develop self-awareness of, are you being reckless as an insubordinate? Are you being aggressive as an insubordinate? Or are you doing this in a principled way? Yeah, I think that what we're already starting to wander into here, Todd, is a, a big part of what you talk about both in the book and just generally in, in your work on Twitter, you know, you're a good follow there, things like that, are a lot of very specific strategies for essentially being a good dissident. Like both being a moral one, as we've talked about so far, and also being an effective one in terms of getting your views heard by people who don't necessarily agree with them and then actually affecting change in some meaningful way. And there are a lot of different strategies that you talk about in the book. And alongside those, a lot of findings from the research literature having to do with them. Um, and so I was wondering here for starters, if there are just one or two that like really stuck out to you and maybe importantly around that, was there any research that you bumped into that really changed your mind about something while you were doing the book? All right. Well, you're talking to my inner and outer nerd with that last part. So let me yeah, tell you first. There's a few studies that really rocked my world. There was a study by Yolanda Jetton. And I bring her name up because there's a lot of non-name scientists who do the best work out there. They yeah, just don't totally. promote themselves. So let me promote yep. Yolanda. And she has this really cool study where she talks about, she kind of uses the framework of Galileo to get her question, which is that Galileo was right. He basically was imprisoned and his life was threatened. And how could we have had a alternative path through history where the church accepted at least giving him a platform to speak his piece and then they could decide, eh, that's kind of stupid. You know what? Like, you could publish it, but you know no one's going to buy that crap. As opposed yeah. to, we're going to throw you in prison, you can't say those things. Yeah. And so she basically did this research, and what she found was, was that if you disagree as a minority voice, Galileo was the minority against, against the church, your ability to persuade is a very different path than if you are a member of the church and you have insider status and you're able to do something. And what she found was, was that 
people wouldn't would would not agree with Galileo at the time or any of the modern day Galileos if they were to have such an extreme change in position. Like if I was to tell you right now that I believe that the law of attraction is real and you could actually you know create a mental image of getting that parking space and put goodness and kindness into the universe and it will manifest the parking space at your local mall. If I told you, like, as a scientist, I now believe that, you would say, that's freaking absurd. I would be the Galileo, the uninteresting Galileo of, you know, of 2022. So what helps you to bring me back into the group? How do you bring me back in? What her work shows is that if there is an act of reconciliation by the senior leaders, respected members of the tribe, you know, the powerful authority figures, people bring that person in despite the fact that they were actually providing misinformation about COVID, despite the fact they're providing misinformation about the law of attraction, despite the fact that they were actually believe that, you know, it's still okay to kind of have sexist and racist and homophobic jokes in your, in your comedy routine. One of the ways that you're actually able to, to be brought back in is this reconciliation process, but it's as simple as having respected authority figures do that. And I didn't realize the power of reconciliation until I started reading this work of, you know what? We don't talk about this enough in society. Yeah. Even though Desmond Tutu just died, who was really, you know, one of the greatest purveyors of reconciliation, you know, in the past 200 years. And there's something really to be said about once we punish people or once we criticize people for going in the wrong direction, what's our end game for them? And we have to really think about this from a well-being perspective because we don't do this. We all have a list of people that we don't like what they did. Now let's 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 put like the really extremes, you know, rape and murder and child abuse to the side, and let's keep it just to kind of speech-related transgressions. This is a big thing right now in society. Which is what's the end game for that person? Because if we don't think that through, we really have a stain. I'm going to be using kind of a more spiritual term because I'm hanging out with you guys. Like it's like a stain on your soul where you haven't provided space for them to come back and return to their lives again. As someone who's interested in criminal justice reform, I think this is a really important part of uh, principle insubordination of how do we modify a system so that you can make mistakes and errors and still have a chance to come back. I spent a whole chapter about the science of you know how do we kind of think about what's the end game. So we don't end up with a 20-year war on top of a 20-year war. Todd, I think this is really deep. And I've reflected a lot in the last few years about what happened when agriculture came along and we stepped out of hunter-gatherer framework of our social lives, which inherently as hunter-gatherers living together most of your life, roughly with the same 40 or 50 people, there are these objective conditions that constrain and condition and construct healthy social living, essentially. But when you lose those, for example, what you're saying about issues of reconciliation, then it's possible to exile people, including extreme forms of exile, you know, ethnic cleansing and things of that sort. On the other hand, if you imagine the person who just popped off around the campfire, you know, back in the Stone Age and was a real jerk, there were processes because you had to live together year in and year out and that guy who popped off was actually your uncle and you really loved his you know wife your aunt and you, you were family so you had to find some way to bring it back together again and so i think a lot of 
what ails us socially and politically at the broadest scale of governance is that many of the enabling conditions and supportive conditions for healthy social life as hunter-gatherers are just no longer present when you start having surpluses of food supplies with agriculture and thus concentrations of wealth leading to concentrations of power in a perpetuating upward spiral. So it's tough, you know, and, and I go back then with regard to this whole notion of our, you know, evolutionary social psychology. In your word insubordination, it's not being subordinated, not being, in other words, dominated and standing freely in the face of dominating structures and still speaking truth to that power. And to me, that's such a fundamental aspect of that. And I think of the ways in which the betas in primate bands necessarily learn to subordinate themselves to the alphas for survival purposes and also so they could kind of sneak around the edges and still pass on genes that passed on genes. So we have baked into us strong tendencies toward knuckling under, cowing, you know, bowing down, bearing the belly, you know, appeasing the powerful ones. It's hard for the betas to band together against the alphas in any kind of effective way because it's freaking scary. So maybe we're bouncing back to courage as a factor that enables people to stand up to dominance, right? Yeah. Stand up to subordinating power structures and to still be effective against them because it is against them for a greater good. So I wonder if you have any comments about that little riff of mine there. And Oh, yeah. I mean, everything you guys mentioned, I mean, this, my God, this is, this is such a cool direction because I hadn't thought about this until now. One of the big themes that I'm interested in is if you lack power status numbers or demographically, there's not a lot of people like you, your path to persuading and influencing and making creative change in the world or in your group or for your life, living your own individual vision of how to live your life. Right? Maybe the way you want to live your marriage is you don't want to live in the same house. So you want to have, you want to break a social norm. I had a friend just tell me this yesterday and I was like, good on you. Like, like I don't know anyone else who's, who's done that before in my personal life, but I am super psyched to hear how that goes. Cause that's very interesting, right? As a, you can imagine a very different response. I could cling to the orthodoxy and be like, oh, that's not going to work. And then he could ask, well, why? And I would have nothing to say other than that's the way it is. Like it just happens to be for hundreds of years, families have lived together and it's what you're supposed to do. It happens there. Mm, mm -hmm. So it's not just a large singular hierarchy in society. We have tons of little, little hierarchies. Like right now in this podcast, Rick, you're the wise one, right? Forrest is, is incredibly intelligent. His trajectory, he's going to be far further than you and I when he gets older. But he, but you're the wise one. I mean, you, you know, you you are the Yoda of the three of us. It's so there, true. So there's a hierarchy. Strong parallels between Rick and Yoda on like oh, a lot man. of different levels. Honestly, we don't talk about skin tone or you know color or you know or athleticism. But you know, there's there's I have a big hierarchy. ears. I hope the the recording shows so we can see the resemblance and we can put the two images next to each other. Oh, I love this. So when Rick speaks, you'll see there's fewer interruptions and let the listeners see this as well, I bear witness, than when Forrest and I speak. Now there's a hierarchy there. Now it's not rigid, it's not like domineering, but there is a level of social dominance there. And when you go out to dinner and it's, it's more than two people, there's a built-in hierarchy. Who captivates attention? Who ends up guiding where the conversation goes? 
halting conversations, changing directions and bringing it there. And then when you're at a family gathering, who makes the toast? Who makes the statement kind of when you're out there? It's not always the matriarch and patriarch. It could just be an incredibly articulate cousin who ends up that people I think is they really are is popular and they like to be around them. So we, we have to see the world as it is, not as we want it to be if we want to change. We're never going to get rid of social hierarchies. You've been doing a really good job, both of you, of kind of bring up you know evolutionary behavioral science here. So we have to work with it. We have to create more permeable boundaries. And we also have to think of other alternative metaphors other than triangles to think about how we relate to people because that might give us the courage to dissent. So one other metaphor, it's not mine, but I can't remember who gave me the metaphor. You could think about hippos. And so when, when hippos are in the same pond and they're trying to seek food, and a lot of them, you know, is like dragonflies and kind of whatever's kind of fly, can fly into their, you know, 2000 pound bodies is they don't all come up at the same time. As soon as a hippo raises its head out of the water and opens up and basically, I am now vigilant for food sources, they become the leader of the group that happens mm-hmm. there. And everyone has an opportunity at any point in time to rise from the water. And when you do, it's like getting the conch. I'm mixing metaphors in, um, oh, what was that book when we were- Lord of the Flies. Piggy, yeah, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Lord of the Flies, right? Take the conch, totally. So the hippo coming up, getting the conch, we can create metaphors that are useful because they can create new cultural norms of how we amplify the voice of people that don't normally get it in the room, not because their ideas and their thoughts and their articulation is any better or worse than anyone else, just because it's the way it's always been. This is really about changing groups to be wiser and smarter. And there are questions to ask, right? Like on this podcast, is that the best structure where Rick is the 5,000 pound hippo and you and I are only like kind of 600 pounds. By the way, for those not looking, you know, Rick is a very thin, <laughs> agile, sinewy kind of guy. <laughs> Great rock climber, the whole thing. Yes, yeah, sinewy arms and, you know, forearms. <laughs> is that the best way, you know, to have it structured to get the most intellectual, creative potential and connection among the three of us? And I use this as a microcosm of the book is designed and this conversation is designed to provoke people to think. What are ways to amplify voices, not just for the sake of equality? Everyone has their unique perspective, unique life history, unique DNA, and their unique approach to how they think and respond to movies and books and stories and conversations and historical events. And the idea that only the same three people are constantly talking in a meeting, that's just not the way to collect the intelligence that exists in that room, extract that intelligence and wisdom and that fortitude and use it so the group is stronger, wiser, faster, and more efficient. I think, Todd, that one of the powerful forms of insubordination that you're actually demonstrating is to make process comments or to comment on what's actually happening, let's say, in terms of who has more or less influence. And one of the things you you called out is is really it's good to call out. It's just interrupting, for example, as a as a kind of statement of power. I, I think back on one of the great books about conversations, at least in my memory, from Deborah Tannen and her co-author. You just don't understand. She was framing it a little bit as masculine feminine styles, but more broadly, she made the point that any kind of communication has these three elements to it. The, overt content of the communication, second, the emotional tone, and third, an implicit statement about the relationship, including the 
power structure in it. So one of the ways that people can, I think, be insubordinate really effectively is just to name it, you know, to name the actual power dynamics in play. So anyway, if I could, just because I guess I'm going to name, we're going to be wrapping up in a, a little bit here. I wanted to ask you as a dad, what do you do when your kids are insubordinate to you? So all of us are hypocrites about what we study and what we research, what we write about. <laughs> my life is spent making lots of mea culpas. And my kids have been taught from a very young age, I have three roles. I mean, this is like from the age of four, which is I teach you stuff, I make you laugh, and then I love you no matter what. This is built into their, you know, into their social DNA of like, this is how we are going to relate to each other. And, you know, because laughter and levity is a very big part of my life and kind of how I raise these kids. It's also way, it's a very useful strategy to subvert power is actually, I mean, you know, Humor. Yeah. One, one of the big things that, you know, other things that motivated me to write this book was Charlie Hebdo. That was seven years ago, close, almost close to the day where you had someone beheaded because they made satirical comments about religious extremists and political extremists around the world. And this was a French publication and you had two men come into the office and kill, kill 12 people, 12 journalists and injure 11 because of a cartoon. And it's worth like sitting with that because of the cartoon. That's where this goes when you actually talk about not allowing someone to question power and not allowing someone to question authority. One of the other strategies, and this gets to, this will turn back to raising my kids, where leaders, and that includes parents or leaders, where you can actually subvert power and actually raise principled insubordinates, even in a group of adults, much less kids, is direct your physical presence. This gets to the somatic stuff for us that you're kind of playing with now. Direct your physical presence towards a voice, not even, and you can actually just relay ideas they told you, relay research that you love that they did, relay their, give them credit, relay credit for how they helped you, how they assisted you, how they contributed to a project. That subverts the power dynamics. When someone who is popular in a group does that, it actually gives power and actually makes the person in power look better. So it's like a win-win-win situation because yeah. the group's also smarter. So that's a big thing that I do with my kids is I direct whatever energy is directed towards me, owning an audience, gaining attention, and someone mentions my kids in my presence. I'm like, hey, so you know what, what do your girls like to do? I'm like, don't ask me. I'm like, listen, they are like as intelligent human beings and you can go ask them right here. I never answer. And they have learned from a very, this, this is waiters, waitresses, adults, family members. I've always amplified their voice and they've learned that, you know, it can be given and you can give it to someone else. And these, it's, it's one of those elements where you don't have to wait till you become an adult until you have an opinion worth hearing. And you don't have to articulate something in grammatical perfection in order to be worthy of being listened to. And I've always told them the goal of anyone that thinks that they're smarter than you is to find the nuggets in what you're saying. And so every time that they have defied me or someone else, um, I've always had their back. And the reason is very simple. I, had, I once had to go into the, uh, the principal's office about this for one of my kids when they were in fifth grade because they challenged a music teacher. Story for another day. But I'll just give the, you know, the denouement which is I went to the, the, the vice principal's office and said, here's the deal. I don't know what my kids said because I wasn't here and you don't have body cameras on them. But I have a young daughter in grade school who is 
gaining her voice and learning it. And she spoke because she knew that something wrong was going on. Now, she might have been rude and obnoxious and inappropriate and, and co with coarse language. If you shut that down now, what do you want my daughter to do when she goes to college? And some and some guy basically says, listen, come with me, like, no, and grabs her by the hand. Or somebody says to her, like, listen, yeah, you're going to make this salary. It's less than these guys right here. But you know what? You can go work someplace else. And you want them to say nothing? And you want them to just mm -hmm. kind of just, just take, take unfair treatment towards them? Because it starts here in this grade school. And, and that vice principal was like, you're right. I told my daughter the whole situation. I said, listen, I don't really care how you said it because you are still learning and shaping how to do it. It was on the teacher to basically give you a, a course right then and there of, listen, love what you did, mm -hmm. hate the way you did it. If you did it this way, you might've actually persuaded me. That's awesome, Todd. And I think is a great teaching, not just for parents and kids, but for just about anyone who's interacting with younger people or even thinking about these concepts of who gets to have a voice and the things that we give people voices for because they are skilled in certain particular ways. Like you named there, being really articulate, having good control of the language, all of that stuff. We've touched on so many things that we could have just a full hour and a half conversation about. But unfortunately, we've basically run out of time here. And it has just been like such a joy to talk with you today, Todd. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, I mean, you guys, you guys are encyclopedic brains, so I am always <laughs> going to say yes to whenever you guys want to hang out. Awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Tens, Todd. Today, we had a great time speaking with Professor Todd Cashton about how to push back on our evolved tendency toward wanting to belong to a particular kind of in-group and dissent effectively when we see things out in the world that we really feel in our hearts need to be pushed back on. This dissent can take a lot of different forms. And one of the things that I mentioned early on in the conversation that became kind of a framing device for everything that we talked about is this tendency in the culture right now where dissent, being a rebel, being the joker, has become this really kind of sexy, appealing thing. The lone wolf, the rebel, the sigma male, whatever weird language you want to use around it. These are all powerful social archetypes, and they're appealing to people. So how can we know that we're dissenting in honorable and effective ways with an emphasis on being pro-social and truly aiming for the betterment of not just ourselves, but of society as a whole, and that we're not just falling prey to these powerful archetypes that we've created around being a rebel. And at least in my view, there are a lot of consequences that we felt socially over the last five to 10 years based largely on the increasing coolness, just for lack of a better way of talking about it, of being a nonconformist. And of course, the great irony all of this is that rebellion can itself become a kind of in-group identity where people attract other fellow free thinkers and non-conformists and who cares about the, what the experts think types to each other. And that becomes the group identity. And Todd cuts through a lot of these challenges and a lot of this complexity by referring to what he calls principled insubordination and distinguishing it from the more problematic types that I'm describing. He referred to four key aspects of principled insubordination. Those are deviance, authenticity, contribution, and social pressure. 
to rebel, you have to have something that you are rebelling against, some social norm that you're taking a really hard look at and going, huh, why do we do things that way anyways? And this can be anything. This can be everything ranging from why are women paid less than men to wait, why do we have these two separate bathrooms for these two different racial groups, all the way down to much smaller things like why do we shake hands? One of the things that Todd emphasized over and over again, particularly when focusing on this idea of principled insubordination, is that real functional deviance is taken unconsciously. It's not just rebelling for the sake of rebelling. It's not coming from a place of ignorance or because you're trying to push down some painful feeling inside of yourself. We spent a lot of the second half of the conversation talking about the importance of self-awareness. The ability to feel your painful feelings, take a little bit of a step back from them, and really see clearly where they're coming from and therefore where your behavior is coming from and what your individual objectives and goals are. And it's only in that context that you can make a choice, a clear seeing choice about whether or not what you're doing is principled or whether it's a kind of coping mechanism or whether your perceived deviance isn't even deviance at all. It's just compliance with a different kind of social group. Two key elements of principled insubordination are authenticity and contribution. And I want to really focus in on the contribution aspect here. Todd is extremely focused on what actually gets us to a better, more just, more equitable society. If you are deviating, it needs to be because you are trying to provide more social value, not because you're just trying to burn it all down for the sake of burning it all down. Then finally, he talks about social pressure, where deviance is only real deviance if you're able to stick to it when times get tough. And this just re-emphasizes what I was saying earlier, where if your deviance is just another kind of conformity, you're not really being a principled insubordinate, you're just being another kind of lemming. We touched on a bunch of interesting topics in the second half of our conversation. Todd talked, I think, really eloquently about the importance of being able to bring people back into the social group once they have deviated from the norm, particularly once they've deviated from the norm in ways that are perceived as problematic. Because the reality is that much of the time when we exile people from the core social group, they become more radical, not less. Todd mentioned something toward the end of the conversation that I want to spend a little extra time talking about here. He mentioned different kinds of structures that we have around power dynamics, who gets the power, who gets to speak, who gets to contribute ideas to a social group, all of that. And he gave his example of hippos, where the power dynamic moves around inside of the group. And a topic maybe for another day, but one that I just want to bring up for a moment here, is how we decide collectively who gets to have an opinion and who gets to speak in a group context. Because we put a lot of value socially on things like being articulate or having great grammar or presenting yourself in a certain kind of way. And the powerful way to do that, the powerful way to talk, the powerful way to present yourself, the powerful way to think about an idea changes based on the group that you're a part of. But our goal here broadly should be to bring in all of the good ideas, not just the ones that are dressed in a manner that we find immediately accessible. And then you get to really provocative questions about who decides anyway what the right way to present yourself is or what the right way to speak is. 
We closed by talking about parenting. Todd's got kids. And a big part of parenting is just the natural power dynamic that plays out there. And so Rick asked him, what does he do when his kids disagree with him? And Todd spoke, I think, really authentically about how he does place cultivating a healthy dissent space pretty high up the hierarchy of personal importance in how he parents. Because he wants his kids to know that they have a voice, they have a seat at the table, and their ideas are valuable, even if they're a little bit younger, even if they're not presenting those ideas perfectly articulately yet. Regardless, the ideas and the feelings themselves have merit, and he really wants to validate that in his parenting style. I had a great time talking with Todd. His new book, as a reminder, is The Art of Insubordination, and I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through whatever platform you're listening to it right now on. And hey, if you could leave a positive rating and a review, that would be great as well. It really does help us out. Also, hey, if you like the show, tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach more people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month or maybe even less than that if you live in the Bay Area, uh, you could support the show and you'll get a whole bunch of bonuses in return. These bonuses include things like very, very detailed show notes that I put together for every episode. They go into the research behind the show. I'm sure there's going to be a lot for this episode. Things like ad-free versions of the podcast, as well as written transcripts of every episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. There are a lot of ways that you could be spending your time, and I just really appreciate that you choose to spend it with us. So we'll talk to you soon.